Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12, as in the scripture reading. And this is going to be the last uh, sermon in the series looking at um, Acts 8 through 12, where it really covers something Jesus said in chapter 1, that the gospel would begin spreading throughout Jerusalem, and then it would start going throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, and eventually to the remotest parts of the earth. And that gives the book of Acts kind of a pretty clear outline uh, versus chapters, rather. Chapters 1 through 7 is the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. Stephen is the first Christian who's martyred for the sake of Christ. And as a result of that, there's a severe persecution that begins in chapter 8. And that's where the gospel begins to spread out of Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria. And then chapter 13 is where the gospel begins to spread to the remotest parts of the earth. Chapter 13 is where Paul and Barnabas are sent out from Antioch. And that's where Paul very famously uh, went to many churches, starting many congregations. And those are his uh, three uh, preaching journeys, some call them missionary trips that he took, all uh, returning back to Antioch and being sent out from there again and again. Uh, We saw Antioch at the end of chapter 11 and the beginnings of that church. Uh, But in the interim, as Paul and Barnabas in chapter 11, verse 30, go to Jerusalem to distribute some uh, funds given by the Christians in Antioch, we get kind of this um, interim story uh, that takes place in Judea, not associated with Paul or Barnabas, uh, but something that happened in Judea, probably in Jerusalem itself, where King Herod kills the Apostle James and arrests Peter, along with mistreating other Christians. And we're going to be looking at some reflections on uh, this account after going through the story. But just like we've seen many personal examples throughout Acts 8 through 11, uh, chapter 12 is no different. Here we have judgment on King Herod, and Herod becomes a very focal, uh, a very focused on person in chapter 12, a focal point of the chapter. Uh, We'll talk more about Herod and who he was in just a moment, but to kind of introduce the chapter, um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and actually before that, Miguel, um, there's a bit of Spanish I want to say here to introduce the lesson, so Miguel, estudiaremos, estudiaremos el capítulo 12 de los hechos, donde el rey Herodes mata al apóstol Santiago y encarcela a Pedro. Uh, Dios envía un ángel para li- liberar a Pedro un poco después, golpea a Herodes por su or- orgullo. orgullo. Uh, veremos cómo esta capítulo nos enseña importantes lecciones sobre la sober- soberanía de Dios. Let's read 1 through 5. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John. Now just really quick. Again, this is the apostle James. uh, Verse 17, after James is killed, Peter will say, report these things to James. That would be the Lord's brother, James, who authored our Bible book, James. So this is the apostle James here that's killed in verse 2. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Four squads would be 16 soldiers, four 
4 of 4, 16, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. So who is this Herod the king? Uh, there's multiple Herods actually in the New Testament, and these are the ones that are at least focused on. There were others. Uh, Herod the Great is the first Herod. He's the beginning of what is known as the Herodian dynasty. Uh, he began to reign at about 37 BC. The Herods are uh, a very evil, very drama-filled family unit. Uh, they were appointed by the Roman government. Herod the Great had ties to the Roman government and therefore was appointed as king of the uh, Palestine region. So Herod the Great had, I think, eight wives. Um, some of those are known by name historically. He had many, many kids. Uh, but Herod the Great is the one who in Matthew chapter 2, when Jesus was born, uh, at least some time shortly after he was born, learned that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, was born. And do you remember in Matthew chapter 2 what this Herod the Great decided to do? In the region, specifically around Bethlehem, he had all of the children from two years old and under executed. So that tells you something about the character of this Herod. Well, his son Herod Antipas uh, took the throne after him. He's the one who in Matthew 14 had John the Baptist beheaded. So again, somebody who was not only a murderer, but as John the Baptist rebuked him, also an adulterer, someone who was sexually immoral. None of that is strange. We know about, uh, it's strange as in, it's grossly immoral and evil, but even historically outside of the Bible, the, the Herodian family was so twisted and so corrupt, and there were so many things about this family uh, beyond what the Bible says that were just intensely evil. Uh, but Herod Antipas had John beheaded, and then in Luke 23, this is something that is only in Luke, but Herod Antipas saw Jesus face to face when he was on trial with Pilate. And it says that Herod Antipas questioned Jesus at length. And do you remember how Jesus responded? Jesus answered him nothing. He had nothing to say to Herod Antipas, the one who had murdered his cousin and beheaded him. Herod Antipas' son did not rule over Judea after him. Uh, Herod the Great had Herod Agrippa I, Aristobulus was Herod the Great's son, but Herod the Great had Aristobulus executed. I know I said that two different ways, but I think Aristobulus is the correct pronunciation. Uh, Herod the Great had Aristobulus executed uh, when Herod Agrippa was like four years old and his mother as well. So Herod Agrippa, both of his parents were actually killed by Herod the Great, his grandfather. So Herod the Great killed his own son and his own daughter-in-law. Uh, I'm not, I can't remember why but lots of intrigue, lots of drama with the Herod families. Suffice it to say, Herod Agrippa I, son of Aristobulus, reigns, and this is the Herod of Acts chapter 12, also a murderer, killing uh, James uh, by the sword as well. Herod Agrippa's son, Herod Agrippa II, is the one who in Acts 25 and 26, when Paul, the apostle, is on trial, Paul will speak face to face with that Herod Agrippa. He's the one where Paul would appeal to him and saying, you know, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Herod Agrippa would famously say, you know, in a short while you would persuade me to be a Christian. Or depending on meaning and translation, it could be a mocking statement. You think in a short time you could persuade me to become a Christian. So it's either, you know, in a short time you will, or this is a joke. You think that in such a short time you can persuade me. Um, just depends on translation. 
Suffice it to say, that is the King Herod here, Herod Agrippa I. Um, he lays hands on Christians, kills James, and has Peter put in prison. And this really becomes a chapter that illustrates principles of God's sovereignty. Herod is a king. He has authority. And we're going to see how God responds to his authority. Now, mind you, with all of this, keep in mind, this is not someone ignorant of the gospel, the happenings of the gospel. He's not unaware on some level of who James is, of who Peter is, who these men are. He would not be completely ignorant of this or the things of Jesus in Judea. These are things he would be well aware of, right? And I think that is, again, a reason why God intervenes so strongly, especially at the end of the chapter. Let's read 6 through 19 uh, before we talk further about this. 6 through, uh, 6 through 19, as Peter's led out of prison. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door watching over the prison. So kind of really quick, Peter's sleeping, two chains, two guards on each side of him, and outside of, outside of the cell, I'm imagining this hallway with guards interspersed through the hallway. He is under heavy guard. Verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guards, so again, picture this, they're going out of this hallway, just passing the guards along the way. They came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along the streets, or went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And just take note, Peter was sleeping. It was evening. And here are Christians still gathered, still praying. Verse 13. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. So Peter is rescued, but in verse 2, what happened to James? Is this like some weird partiality? You know, could God have freed James from prison and from the hand of Herod, just like he had done with Peter? I would argue yes. Uh, but there, there were some words shared by a brother that I really appreciated, Matthew Basford, some time ago, um, that really helped me see that there is, instead of tragedy here, there is triumph. Think about what this conveys about God. There are going to be other Christians who are martyred for the cause of Christ. 
Would James, an apostle, being martyred, be something that could potentially be very comforting to Christians who would suffer similar fates in the future? And think about this as well. The fact that Peter was also in prison and rescued also says something else. James was put to death. Did that mean God was not in control? Based on the fact that Peter was let out of prison, James being put to death, does that mean God is not in control? Does it mean God was withdrawn, too far away, unconcerned? None of those things. God deliberately allowed James to be put to death. Not a tragedy, but a triumph. There are two lessons being taught here, two critical, essential lessons being taught in the outcome of both of these men. And James's death, again, not a tragedy, but rather a triumph. James reached his reward sooner than the other apostles. He had finished his course. He had been everything that God had needed him to be, and he was victorious over death as other Christians would be who would endure, again, the same fate. So what, what happens with Peter, though? You know, it's very interesting how this turns out. Again, there's 16 guards. So this is heavy custody. You know, Herod has pulled no, uh, pulled no stops, spared no expense. I imagine having 16 soldiers in charge of this one man was a fairly big deal. And yet was Herod in control? You know, Peter sleeping directly between two guards with two chains. You imagine how much more secure can you have a prisoner? And yet despite the security, the, I'm imagining the guards are right there. I don't know if God caused them to sleep and everybody was just asleep because God made it that way or if like their eyes are open and just miraculously they just have no perception of what's happening and Peter's just walking right by them while like you know their eyes are open I don't know not that it really matters anyway suffice it to say that the chains fall off his hand and there's an irony in verse 7 notice it says the angel struck Peter in verse uh, 23 there's also an angel that strikes Herod. So an angel strikes Peter to save him. An angel strikes Herod to judge him. He's taken out of the prison and, you know, thinks he's seeing a vision. I imagine this seems just very surreal, just all of this. And yet he's taken out. Now, before we move on, what was Peter's emotional condition in this chapter? What is implied about Peter and the fact that he was sleeping. The fact that there were Christians gathered together praying, I don't know, maybe this was 1 a.m., and they just, like, were praying through the night. But I imagine, like, I wouldn't be surprised if this was, you know, evening, but not super late. Mind you this as well. Don't forget, is Peter married? Does he have kids? Peter became an elder of a church, 1 Peter 5. Remember, Peter's mother-in-law was ill at the early parts of Jesus' ministry, and Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Peter was married by the implication of the fact that he became an elder. Peter had kids. Despite the fact that he was married with kids, wife and children, he's in prison. He's about to die. Is Peter seemingly in deep emotional turmoil? He's asleep, which seems to convey that Peter has just entrusted himself to the Lord Peter is well content, suffering the same fate as James. He wasn't shaking on the doors of the cell because James was put to death. Let me out! Let me out! Save me! I'm innocent! And mind you as well, what did the church do? Herod was an extraordinarily corrupt politician. 
Not only was Herod a corrupt politician, he was a little bit of a Jew, but he was more Roman than he was a Jew. He had ties to the Jewish people. But did the Christians go out and protest Herod's corruption after this? You know, when James was put to death, did they go out and start picketing the praetorium or going out to Herod's palace demanding Peter's release? No, instead, their solution, as is continuously the solution in Acts, they pray, and they not only pray, they pray fervently. And they don't just pray fervently, they continue to pray even into the evening when Peter had been well asleep. So it's so unbelievable that Peter had been rescued in this way that they don't even believe the servant girl when she tells them Peter's at the door. This could be a lesson in like, you know, God answers the prayer that they were praying, but it's, you know, so unbelievable. They didn't even believe it when it happened. But this may not be helpful, but it doesn't say that they were praying for Peter's freedom. I've thought that for a long time. I guess I read that in the text. It could be that they were praying for Peter to be encouraged, that God would help and embolden Peter. You know, there's a lot of things they could have been praying. Maybe they were praying that God would miraculously take him out of prison as he had before. Suffice it to say, they're very surprised. They don't believe it even when it's told to them. And in verse 15, when they say it is his angel, that may be their way of saying Peter's dead. And what you're seeing is not Peter because he's not even alive anymore. And yet when he knocks and they see him, um, he goes his way after telling them to report it to James and the brethren. Verse 18 and 19. What was the cost of this answer to prayer? It was expensive. What did it cost God to get Peter out of prison? Sure, Peter's ministry can continue. What about these other soldiers? Do you think God knew freeing Peter was going to cost 16 souls? That their lives would end and be forfeited? It cost 16 souls to answer this prayer. You know, what this chapter has helped me consider is I may ask things of God and I don't even realize how costly it, him, it, how costly it is for him to organize an answer. Could they have comprehended 16 people are going to die to get Peter out of prison? But that's the reality, that's the heavy lifting that God has to deal with. We need to respect God's sovereignty. That sometimes there are factors involved in things that we think, well, that should be easy, God, just do this, this will be better. But God may see consequences God may see other factors involving others that are not so easy to just say, oh yeah, absolutely, right? And so there's many lessons in trusting God's sovereignty. I do think it is very encouraging, though, that God released Peter from prison despite the consequences nonetheless. 20 through 24, let's also see as this isn't the end of the story yet because God has more to do with Herod before the narrative concludes. Verse 20. Now, he was angry. This is Herod after executing the guards. He was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This is a region in northwestern Palestine uh, in the Sumerian region. With one accord, they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. That is Herod's. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum, rostrum, and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory 
He was eaten by worms and died, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. You know, wouldn't it be nice if people saw God like these people saw Herod, desperately asking for terms of peace because they saw, well, he provides us with food. And if he's upset with us, if if he's wrathful against us, he has the ability to cut off our food supplies and our lives are going to get harder. If only people treated God and what he provides as realistically as what these people in Tyre and Sidon were doing towards Herod. And so in flattering Herod to try to win some kind of advantage from him, to get food from him, in verse 22, they say, the voice of a God and not a man. Mind you again, Tyre and Sidon is actually a region Jesus literally went to in his lifetime. So once again, we're not dealing with Gentile regions over in Asia. We're dealing with places very close in proximity where Jesus was, where the apostles had been teaching, where Christians had had been teaching. This is one of the areas most saturated with the teaching and the preaching of the gospel. Well, God doesn't strike them, and instead, Herod, God strikes him. In verse 23, did Herod say anything? Did he say, oh yes, I am a God and not a man? He said nothing. And by saying nothing, he was guilty, not giving God the glory. He accepted praise and worship fit only for God. How often does God, even especially in the New Testament, strike people dead? You know, there's Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. But I mean, there were Jewish leaders persecuting Christians before this who who knew better, and God didn't strike them dead. What I'm trying to say is there's something particularly significant that God wants us to see, that God wanted these people to see, and the fact that he struck Herod himself and put an end to his life because of this. And I think it's a lesson in the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. You know, the title of this series has been uh, Portraits of Jesus's Dominion. And Herod in this illustration, this narrative, illustrates lessons of Jesus's sovereignty. I know sovereignty is kind of like a weird word. Um, What does that convey? What does that mean? And I'll support this with a verse here in just a moment, but I'll read you what I have on the board here. And these are words that relate to God's sovereignty sovereignty specifically. So like when people say like, you know, the king of England is sovereign, like these are not things that can be said about the king of England, whatever, the Roman emperor of this time doesn't matter. What I mean by sovereign biblically as it relates to Jesus and his rule and to God the Father it's him it's it's who he is as supreme ruler the highest authority ultimate in power no greater power nothing beyond his ability he's the exclusive provider everything that we have everything that gives life everything we eat every breath we take every movement of our body is provided exclusively solely by God and God is perfect in wisdom. He is inscrutable. God does all things he does with a perfect wisdom, with an eternal perspective, with a perspective that exceeds ours. He is perfect in wisdom and in righteousness and everything he does and surpassing in glory. Everything that cultivates amazement draws our attention or attraction. God's glory so far surpasses it. It is always surpassing. There's a king that God didn't strike who I think appropriately respected the sovereignty of God. And actually in the Psalms, there's a multitude of prayers by this person describing and connecting to, properly treating these qualities of God's sovereignty. 
But I think First Chronicles 29, 10 through 13, there is a concise, uh, very perfect description of God's sovereignty. So this is something David said uh, when Solomon was about to take over rule. This is only in Chronicles, and it's when the throne is about to be passed on. These are some of David's last words, and here's what David said. He praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, the rule, all rule. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. God is sovereign, meaning he is supreme ruler. He is the ultimate power. He is the exclusive provider. He is perfect in wisdom and surpassing in glory. How should that impact us? How should that change us? And I think the story in Acts 12, Herod and Peter illustrate principles about God's sovereignty very practically. I want to think about this in terms of an alliteration. Alliteration meaning it's letters that all start with the, or words that all start with the same letter. Uh, we're going to see how this relates to our pride, our prayer life, and our political views, our politics. Pride, prayer, and politics. And we're going to start with pride. How should God's sovereignty, the fact that God is sovereign, affect our pride? Something I want to mention really quick here as we talk about how God's sovereignty should, have, should affect our pride God has always been sovereign. That's been since the very beginning. There's never been a moment in time, not even a moment, where God was not ruling as supreme and sovereign in all of these ways. But what does the cross and what does Jesus reveal about God's sovereignty that maybe wasn't as clear before? Maybe things that David saw glimpses of but didn't see the fullness of. Jesus demonstrates how God exercises his sovereignty in love, always for salvation, and always for the reconciliation of mankind. From sin to salvation, from separation to reconciliation with himself. God's sovereignty is exercised in supreme rule, ultimate power. He's the exclusive provider, perfect in wisdom, surpassing glory, all for me in the most intimate, needful, and important ways. How does this affect pride? Well, with Herod, let's start with thinking about how pride takes credit for someone else's work. Herod took credit for something that really glory should have been given to God, and we see that very clearly in, in verse 23. He chose not to give glory, but rather received it, and God struck him, and the word of the Lord continued to increase. Think about plagiarism. In college, what are consequences for plagiarism? meaning you've written a paper where you're, you require sources to support your work or your conclusions. Plagiarism would be you've taken sources or you've looked up someone else's research and you've adapted that research into your work without giving credit to the original source. You know if a college finds out that you submitted a paper that is plagiarized, meaning you've used sources, you have not cited your sources, you can actually be expelled from college. 
So not just like an F, you know, a failing grade for the assignment. You can be expelled from the school. Not only can you be expelled from the school, that can go on your permanent record where other colleges will no longer accept you because of the fact that you had plagiarized work at one point, right? So that can become a stain on your record. Or think about copyright infringements where someone's invented something. Someone's done something where that's theirs. They've legally now have control over this asset, this work, this project. And if somebody tries to create an imitation or pass it off as their own, there can be legal repercussions. Or think about identity theft, right? Where your credit card, your driver's license, your social security number, where somebody takes that and they start spending your money. They start doing things in your name. Thinking about that more personally, how are you going to feel about that when somebody is using your resources and taking them without giving you any credit, any notice, asking for any permission? We get the idea. God's sovereignty and Jesus especially demonstrating that sovereignty, the gospel confronts us with the reality that we don't deserve any credit. I do not deserve credit of having rule over my own life, that I am a sheep, God is the shepherd. I have no power, God is the ultimate power and I'm dependent on him. I am not the provider, no matter how many hours I may work, no matter what my income level may be, no matter how much effort I've invested in education, in the corporate ladder, God is exclusively and only and ever will be the only provider of my life. He's perfect in wisdom, that means I have a lack of it. God gets the credit for all wisdom. And there is no glory that anybody has except for God alone. He is surpassing only in glory. How should that affect the way we talk, the way we pray? Even beyond how I talk, just the way I think, my perspective of myself, who gets the credit? Along with credit, this affects our sense of control. Kind of seems like Herod felt like he was pretty well in control. I mean, he had James put to death. There we go. That's done. He had been mistreating other Christians, and I'm assuming that meant other Christians either would have been put to death or put in prison. And he put Peter in prison, guarded by 16 soldiers in a heavily guarded prison. Was Herod really in control? Was Herod really in control? How did Peter feel? It looks like Peter had pretty well lost control, right? I mean, Peter is an apostle. He's got important things to do. He has a ministry that once he's dead, there's an apostle gone. And mind you, they didn't replace James because once these apostles are done, that's it. No more apostles. So how important is it? And yet Peter had seemingly full trust in the fact that God is still ruling as sovereign. God is in control. What says the most about your trust in God's sovereignty, his control? How do you respond when things are not going good? When things don't go the way you want? When there are things that are inconvenient, unexpected, those are the things that most test our trust in God's sovereignty. Look, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be things that take us off guard or cause us turmoil, but God's sovereignty puts to the test where we go in those moments and how fervently we go to God and how much we invest in seeking comfort and consolation from him. Because again, God is the only provider. So think about this with the things on the board. You go through something unexpected, something you don't want to go through, something happens, some tragedy. Maybe even it's just some, some minor inconvenience. Is God still ruling? 
is God still ultimate in power? And not only in principle, is he still exercising that power toward you in your life, even when things don't seem to be going your way? Or how about an exclusive provider? When, when you suffer some form of loss, does that mean that God has stopped providing? And his hand is now so short that you've been forgotten or are suffering neglect. You suffer some kind of inconvenience. Does that mean that God is not wise anymore? That he's not using his wisdom to redeem the circumstances for his glory and even for your own good? And do you still see God's glory even when things do not go well? Think about the cross and what that teaches about the reality of God's sovereignty. When Jesus suffered crucifixion and everything about God's plan no longer made sense to anybody, was God still ruling? Was he still ultimate of power? Was he still providing? Was he still using wisdom? Was he still worthy of glory? What did Jesus think about that? And how did that sustain him through the cross? How did that humble him and maintain perspective even through the cross? Look, we've got a lot to learn about God's sovereignty. This isn't just an idea. It's not just some principle or information about God. There's a reality to how these things should impact how we think, how we think about our lives, how we think about both trial and prosperity. God's sovereignty should dramatically change how we pray. I'm struck in the book of Acts. How consistently the church's response to problems is prayer. And how it's not just people individually praying, but them coming together for prayer. I struggle so much with applying that and inviting others into that. But what I recognize about the church in the New Testament is they understood prayer on so much a greater level. Back in uh, chapter 12, verse 5, the church wasn't just praying. How were they praying? They were praying fervently. If I recognize God's sovereignty, I will pray fervently. To see that God is supreme in all of these ways, you know what that says about me? I'm in need, desperate need. You know how people get when they're in desperate need? They get fervent. (laughs) They get desperate. That's what we see in Jesus. Jesus was continuously fervent because unlike anyone else, Jesus was intimately attuned to his state of need. Jesus was not someone who saw himself as self-sufficient, as just habitually righteous because he's always been righteous, therefore he will be righteous, so today's going to be easy. I've got this. I can do miracles. No, we see Jesus as someone given deeply, fervently to prayer. Prayer should change how we talk to God when we see the nature of our need and how God is the only provider He's the only one who can provide the the wisdom that's needed to navigate our circumstances. But there's really two things here. It should change the way we, we pray in prosperity and in trial. Again, with Herod at the end of this chapter. Herod was not in a state of trial and difficulty. What did he need to do? Give God the glory. Was that so difficult, such a high demand that he just give God the glory? He didn't need to surrender his position as king of Judea, just give God the glory. How do you respond when things go well? Do you know that you're more prepared for trials when even in your prosperity and ease, you are intimately attuned to God's sovereignty, giving him the glory, giving him the thanks, and giving him the praise? Because then it becomes apparent 
I don't really have control. God, by grace, may be granting me comfortable circumstances or success in some regard that makes sense to me, but that doesn't mean I can't lose it. It does not mean that I'm in control. That does not mean that prosperity needs to be what I cling to in some idolatrous way. Prayer makes the difference between how willing I am to let go and have peace when things are not going my way. And that starts with how we handle prosperity, but also, again, trial and difficulty. This is where we see in the Psalms, constantly, psalmists desperately approaching God. Psalm 5 begins, Give heed to the words of my mouth, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. The psalmist begins his prayer not with, Dear Father, our Lord in heaven. It just gets right to the desperation. You know, not that there's anything wrong with formalities, but again, the psalmists recognizing God's sovereignty were continuously fervent and desperate in their prayers because there is no other solution, especially when suffering great trials. So prayer should change how I approach God's sovereignty, and God's sovereignty should change uh, my prayers. But also politics. Again, we don't see the Christians picketing or protesting. Um, There may be situations where somehow that can be okay. It's simply not the way they responded here uh, is the point. God's sovereignty must change how I view and interact with world governments and authorities. You know, we never see in the book of Acts Christians reviling or maligning authorities, although they are continuously confronted with deeply corrupt governments that were not only not making it conducive for them to live out their faith, but were actually directly persecuting them. And you notice in verse 3, this was great. Not only did Herod have James to death, but, I mean, this pleased the Jews. This was good news to the ears of the common people of the community. So these were incredibly corrupt politicians. The response of the church was prayer. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, addresses our relationship to governments and authorities in view of God's sovereignty. It says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Think about that at the end of verse 2. This isn't just life or death. This is heaven or hell, which is much bigger and consequential than just life or death. This is heaven or hell. How serious is God about submitting to and respecting authority? I don't know if verse 1 is saying that, like, the authorities that exist are established by God, as in, you know, God has created authority, therefore every level of authority is something established by God, or it could mean that God... In his providence, there are certain people that he appoints as rulers of nations like Nebuchadnezzar back in the Old Testament period, people he appoints for his own purpose, which we are not able to see or understand. Either way, God has given us a very clear role in relation to government. Honor, submit, be in subjection. There is an important difference between involvement and entanglement. This doesn't mean that it's wrong to vote to be very aware of politics and political situations. It doesn't mean that a person can't even talk about politics and their views on politics. But again, there's there's a very fine line between involvement and entanglement. And biblically, we never see New Testament Christians entangled in politics, no matter the spectrum. A way to think about this practically. How do you talk about our president? How did you talk about Donald Trump when he was president? How do you talk about Joe Biden? 
being president? What about when they act in shameful ways? They make decisions that negatively affect you. You know, 1 Peter 2 also says we're to honor the king. There is a difference between talking about a problem and maligning a person. Again, I know these things can be challenging, and, you know, the American mentality is very different from the Bible. Sometimes the religious American mentality is very different from the Bible. We have to be really careful that politicians don't become our verbal punching bags uh, to do with as we will. But we, first and foremost, God's sovereignty, whatever he says goes. If God says, honor the ruler, that's it. He's the one ultimate in power. He's the provider. He has the wisdom. He's surpassing glory. So whatever God says about anything or anyone, that's the end of the line. And if God is in supreme authority, then he has the ability to dictate how we respond to every authority beneath him. Herod was beneath God. Herod was beneath Jesus. Every government in the world is beneath Jesus. Finally, our ruler, our political leader, has already come and produced the greatest change. There's no politician who can make the change that we need like Jesus did. The gospel is the greatest, most important political movement. It is a kingdom movement. It is not just a message of you change your life and go on your way. It is a kingdom movement, a political movement. Our king is ruling already. Our king has given change already. Our king has provided what's most needed already. Is that enough? Does that satisfy you? Is that what you're seeking? God's sovereignty doesn't just change my attitude, my view of myself, my perspective of others, my pride. It's not just that it should change my prayers. It should dramatically change how I interact with and how I respond to both governments and also those, those in positions of authority. That's the lesson for this morning. I appreciate your patience as we went through that. And I hope that this series in Acts has help demonstrate ways to read the Bible and see principles and applications from things that are narrative. So usually for me, the book of Acts, I read the stories, I've read them before, okay, good rehearsal, move on. There's more to it. Everything in the Bible is teachable. Everything in the Bible has application behind it. If we'll read it, patiently meditate on it and think about it in the right way. Acts 12 has profound lessons that through this week have really challenged me, and I hope they challenge and help you, equip you as well. If you're here this morning and you see your need for repentance, if there's a sin that you've committed, that you see your need to confess it before the church and to seek the help of the saints, we exist to serve the purpose of God. We exist to serve his sovereignty and to help one another connect more completely to his sovereignty. The gospel is not just a message of changing behaviors. It is surrendering control. We surrender our control to the king that starts with our belief in his word, our repentance confession, and if we have not been saved, being baptized for the remission of our sins to be a part of that kingdom. If we can do that for you this morning, please come forward while we stand and sing.